You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm excited to preach. It's been a couple weeks, and, and you guys know how it is. When I don't preach for a couple weeks, when I come back, I'm ready to go. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Our, our gospel reading of the week um, that we're going to look at in just a moment, it comes out of Matthew 18, and it's a parable of Jesus. And in fact, moving forward over the next few weeks, our gospel readings are going to be parables. So we're going to be getting into parable mode for the next uh, month or two. title of the sermon is The Imitation of Christ. Let's go ahead and begin reading. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, pause there. i got to remind you what the kingdom of heaven is. Because most commonly when we hear the term kingdom of heaven, our Our American evangelical minds go to afterlife destination, and we're thinking, okay, he's going to tell us how to get to heaven when we die. And that's not Jesus' subject. He uses terms like kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God all the time, but he's never talking specifically and exclusively about afterlife destination. Remember, the reason Jesus came above all, above the many reasons, is he came to usher in the kingdom of God. He began his ministry saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the good news. And all he ever taught about was the kingdom of God telling folks it's right in your midst. It's right in front of your face. It's among you. So what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which are synonymous terms? It's simply God's reign which comes through the person of Jesus. Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago, he inaugurated the reign of God on the earth which is now overlapping this present age. And one day when Jesus returns, this present age is going to be completely done away with and the age of, uh, the, age of, uh, of the kingdom of God will be perfected and eternalized and come in completion. So we right now have the opportunity to enter into and participate in the kingdom of heaven. And that happens when we align ourselves in allegiance to King Jesus who as the ascension, we talked about the ascension last week, he's presently ruling and reigning over heaven and earth right now. So his subject is not here's how to get to heaven when you die. His subject is here's what it looks like to participate in God's reign right here and right now. That's his subject. So he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, They brought to him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. A lot of translations use the word talents, but the idea is just this is an extraordinary amount of money. It's an unimaginable amount of money, so much that you would never be able to pay it back in your lifetime. It would take dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of lifetimes to pay back this kind of debt. Verse 25. Because the servant didn't have enough to pay it back, the master ordered that he should be sold along with his wife and children and everything he had and that the proceeds should be used as payment. But the servant fell down, kneeled before him and said, please be patient with me 
and I'll pay you back. This despite the fact that he couldn't possibly pay it back. Verse 27. The master had compassion on that servant, released him, and forgave the loan. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins, which is not an insignificant amount of money, but it's much, much less than the debt that he owed. He grabbed him around the throat and said, pay me back what you owe me. Verse 29, then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he threw him into prison until he paid back his debt. When his fellow servants saw what happened, they were deeply offended. They came and told their master all that happened. His master called the first servant and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? His master was furious and handed him over to the guard responsible for punishing prisoners until he had paid the whole debt. And then Jesus closes the parable with these chilling words. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray. Once again, God, we come before you, we pause, we acknowledge that you're in the room, you're at work in this place, and you're here to deal with us, to speak to us, to invite us, to challenge and inspire, to warn us even. And so, as best we know how, for the next few moments, we humble ourselves before you, and we invite you to speak to the very core of our being whatever you intend for us to receive tonight. Speak to our hearts. And may your kingdom be established in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world that's gone horribly wrong. I don't have to convince you of that. And I think we can all bear witness to that, that that our world doesn't need to be tweaked here and there No, we live in a world that's fundamentally gone wrong. It's broken. Things like war and injustice and poverty, these are some of the primary witnesses of the reality that we we, we live in a world that's gone profoundly wrong. And on some of the most basic levels, we need to reimagine how life as human beings on this planet can be lived. We live in a world gone wrong. And what lies at the root of what is fundamentally wrong with the world is sin. And as important as politics may be, and as important as education is, there's not going to be a purely political solution to this problem. And there's not going to be a purely educational solution or a purely military solution to the problem of human sin. As Christians, we believe and confess that the solution to the problem of sin lies in Christian forgiveness. Jesus was born into a world in which paybacks and vengeance and retaliatory violence and us versus them hostility and retribution were the order of the day. 
From the very beginning, that's what human history has been fueled by. You go back as far as you want. Study any civilization, any nation, any society you want throughout all of human history, and you will find the same cycle of vengeance turning from generation to generation. Every society has to find their enemy them and pay them back for some real or perceived slight. And when they win, when their side wins, then those who lead them to victory become their heroes and demagogues. So the Babylonians had Nebuchadnezzar. The Persians had Cyrus the Great. The Greeks had Alexander the Great. The Romans had Caesar Augustus. And everybody's hoping that the next one is going to be their hero and going to win the game for their side. But then along comes this mysterious prophet from Nazareth who in the first century, many Jews are believing and claiming to be their Messiah. And they imagine that he's going to be our Jewish version of Alexander. He's going to be our Jewish version of Augustus. And he's going to put the hammer down on those Romans and win the game for our side, finally. And instead, he doesn't do it. And he goes to the cross and stretches his arms out on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, let me ask you something. How do you retaliate against that? See, on the cross, we're seeing someone who refused to play the game. He could have played the game and I'm, I'm convinced he would have been quite successful at it. He would have been the best military conqueror ever. And he was tempted to play the game. That happens much earlier during his wilderness temptation, during those 40 days of continual temptation. And it was in the wilderness where Jesus saw a way that he could play the game. He could bow to the devil's agenda of retaliatory cyclical violence and retribution through which Jesus, I'm convinced, truly could have conquered and won the kingdoms of the world. But if he had done so, nothing would have changed. It would have just been turning the next page of history, same as it ever was. And instead, Jesus says, no, I'm going to find a way to bring that to an end. And he goes to the cross, and as the worst crime in human history is perpetrated against him, what comes out of his mouth is not, avenge my blood. What comes out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's beautiful. And it's our gospel. And it's the Jesus way. I'm going to say it just as blunt as I can. This is the way and the truth and the life that we are called to embrace and embody. What else do we think Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me? He's saying, do it like I do it. Imitate me. Follow this path. So in this parable we just looked at, the master pardoned the servant's debt. And, and I, I just wanna, I want us to understand, this was not a cheap pardon. This is a real loss. 
The master was willing to lose the unimaginable amount of 10,000 bags of gold in order to pardon and keep the servant a free man. Essentially what he's saying is, I'll bear the loss. I'll absorb the pain so that this man can go, go on as a free member of his community and society. And I don't want us to be under any delusion when we follow the path of Jesus. You know, Jesus on the cross, what he's doing, he's absorbing hate, he's absorbing vengeance, he's absorbing sin and evil into his own flesh, and he recycles it. And what comes back is not more and heightened vengeance. What comes back is extravagant love and radical forgiveness. And if we're going to follow that path of cross-shaped forgiveness, we have to, we have to understand there's going to be some real loss involved we've got to be willing to absorb some loss in order to release someone from their debt well the servant when he receives this extravagant radical forgiveness from his master rather than being formed and shaped by that act of mercy and forgiveness he goes and finds a guy who owes him a much, much, much less amount of money. And he holds his feet to the fire and has him thrown into prison. And the moment he does so, he exits the world of grace. And he returns back into the world of retribution where every penny must be paid and every, every debtor must pay or be punished. And in his lust for payback, he breaks the law of reciprocal grace that's set forth in the Lord's Prayer. I pray it every single day. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, just for the sake of my point, I'm going to put that in the singular. And I want you to hear it as a singular st statement. Father, forgive me my debts. Forgive me my trespasses as I also have forgiven those who trespass against me. Do you understand what we're actually praying when we pray that? What you're praying is, Father, I want you to forgive me in the same manner that you've seen me forgive those who are indebted to me. Now, when you pray that prayer, have you blessed or cursed yourself? You know, I, I'm just going to tell you, I mean, if you're, if you're the type of person who's like, I don't get mad, I just get even, baby. And I, I might forgive, but I don't forget. All right, is that how you want God to deal with you? Because I'm just going to tell you, that's how this thing works. That's how it works. Look at what Jesus says explicitly in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Right smack in the middle of the sermon. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I've never seen anybody needlepoint that onto a pillow. But we have to understand this thing of mercy is reciprocal. It's a, see, rather than the cycle of violence and retribution, Jesus, he, he invites us into a whole different orbit, a whole different axis that revolves in cycles around mercy and forgiveness that's pulled together by the cross. So, as, you know, I, I remember growing up seeing on bumpers these pithy little, you know, these pithy little bumper stickers, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Okay, praise God for that. But, but we're not just called to come and receive forgiveness. We're called to be formed and shaped into merciful, forgiving people. So we pray 
forgive us in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. But we also join Jesus in his cry from the cross when we pray, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we pray both prayers. Forgive us, forgive them. Forgive us, forgive them. Lord's Prayer, forgive us, cry from the cross, forgive them. Forgive us, forgive them. Forgive us, forgive them. Until us and them melts into one community of forgiving people. Us and them disappears and it's just the forgiven. We've got to recapture forgiveness as our compelling message to the world. We must so return to that that when people outside of the Christian community, when people outside of the church, when they think about Christians, the first thing that comes to their minds is they say, man, those Christians sure are a bunch of forgiving people. Those are the people that turn the other cheek. Those are those people who when we hate them, they love us. Those are those people who when we abuse them and mock them and ridicule them, they pray for us and they bless us and they speak kindly of us and to us. We're not there yet. You just got to take a little stroll around social media. And especially over the next nine or ten months, as our society goes nuts and a bunch of Christians go nuts with them, and you'll find we're not there yet. Muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Angry, protesting, pointing the finger is not gospel work. Forgiving sense is gospel work. So right before the transfiguration, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. This is the big conversation that he has with them. The most important conversation up to this point. And they're in Caesarea Philippi, and I, I imagine they're huddled around a campfire at night, and they can hear the wind and the trees, and they're in a place of contemplation, and there's a moment of silence, and they can hear the fire crackling. And Jesus says, uh, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? And they're like, oh, you know, some people are saying you're Elijah. <laughs> you're not Elijah, are you? Others people are saying you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets or whatever. And then Jesus says, okay, enough of that. Who do you say that I am? And everybody shuts up. Except Peter, always the bold one. Peter speaks up very boldly and says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms and, and, and basically explains that this is the confession upon which the whole church is built, upon which the gates of hell shall not prevail. But I want you to notice what he says in Matthew in the same sentence he he says i will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven 
and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's a very intriguing statement. It's exciting and it sounds important. We just aren't quite sure yet. What is he talking about? It just sort of teases us. Okay, there are these keys and they unlock stuff and, and they affect things on heaven and earth and there's some authority, but we don't know what these keys are yet. We wonder what they are. We don't know. We don't even know if they're real. What is he talking about? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to tell you this much. I'm going to show you in Scripture what these keys are and then we're going to be done. The keys of the kingdom, and I'm going to show it to you, the keys of the kingdom have to do with forgiving and retaining sin. To loose with the keys of the kingdom is to loose people from their sins so that they are forgiven. To bind is to bind people to their sins so that they are not forgiven. That's what the king, keys of the kingdom are, and that's what they do. It's very clear in Scripture. So what I want to do real quickly is I'm going to walk you through three passages in the New Testament that develops this same thought. You'll see it very clearly, and then we'll, we'll close. I'll say a few words, and then we'll close. First, we're going to go back to Matthew, and we're going to go just a little bit further into chapter 18, and here we find this discussion about the church and, and about within the church when a brother sins against you. What do you do? It involves, and, and he talks about how it involves going to them and then bringing others and getting the community involved, seeking repentance and reconciliation. This was our gospel reading last week. And let's look at um, what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the community. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, watch this, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It has to do with reconciliation and forgiveness. He says in 19, verse 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? Because that's the topic. My brother sins against me. I go to him seeking repentance and reconciliation. He repents and I forgive him. That's what the keys of the kingdom are all about. So Peter says, okay, Lord, but uh, how often should I do this? Should I do it even up to seven times? He's thinking that's outrageously generous. And look at what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus said to him, verse 22, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. Now look at John chapter 20. These are scriptures that are right there in plain view. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. It, hopefully it'll be, there, there we go. When it was evening on that day, now this is the day of, of Jesus' resurrection, just for context. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. That's the first word of a new world. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Next statement. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So here, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he says, listen, I'm about to leave, but just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You're going to be my hands and feet. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom and you're going to be able to bind and loose. And so I'm asking you to proclaim and embody this message. You've seen me proclaim and embody. Just Three days earlier, they see him on the cross, absorbing sin, absorbing, absorbing evil, absorbing hate, and he recycles it into extravagant love and merciful forgiveness. He's saying, now I'm calling you to embody this message of love and forgiveness in the world right now. But notice what he does right in the middle. He breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because this is not a philosophy that you can just go out and live on your own. Like if you, if you leave this place saying to yourself, okay, I heard a message on forgiveness tonight, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to be a really forgiving person. Probably not. It'll probably last all the way until tomorrow afternoon. Because you cannot do this on your own consistently. If you're going to live a lifestyle of cross-shaped mercy and forgiveness, it's going to require the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, how do, we, how do we get filled and remain filled with the Holy Spirit? This is why the formational practices of prayer and scripture and worship and community is so important. This is why I talk about it week after week after week. I'm going to say it just as clearly and as bluntly as I can. If you don't have a rhythm of healthy prayer in your life, it's impossible for you to live the life Jesus has called you to live you're not going to be able to live a life that glorifies Christ if you're not abiding in Christ through the practices of prayer and scripture and worship and community and so forth. These formational practices are like the poles and the wire that the power of electricity flows through. In order to benefit from the power of electricity, I've got to have some poles planted in the holes in the ground and some wires stretched. Now, the poles and the wire are not what generates the electricity, but it's the apparatus through which the power flows through. In the same way, if we're going to benefit from the power of God in an ongoing, continual basis, we need the apparatuses of the Christian practices. Prayer and worship and scripture, where every day I say, Lord, fill me, immerse me in your love. Fill me with your spirit so that I actually can live the Sermon on the Mount. I can actually live in radical forgiveness that it's not just something i think about and talk about and sermonize about and write doctrines on but this is a message that is embodied in my flesh towards the world and it takes the holy spirit to live this way and then finally the apostle john will also speak to us in in the his first epistle let's look at first john very in the conclusion of that letter near the end in verses 16 and 17 John writes, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, he shall get on the phone and tell everyone he knows about it. <laughs> no. 
You should pray, he says, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, there's another verse we like to stay away from, but we shouldn't because it's beautiful. What is this? First of all, what is the sin that leads to death? Well, I think very clearly it's, it's rejecting Jesus. It's refusing to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the sin that leads to death. And so part of what John's saying here is that you cannot, through your prayers, sponsor someone else into salvation. That's something that Jesus does, and he does it for those who believe upon him and entrust themselves to him in his way. So I have an unsaved loved one. I can pray for them that their heart would be softened, but ultimately they have to make a volitional choice to follow and embrace Jesus. So I cannot pray someone into salvation, just to use our common terms. It's not terminology I love to use, but just to help you. We can't pray someone into salvation. But what John is also saying is you can pray for a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned and secure forgiveness on their behalf. How? It's amazing. I mean, Jesus, through his apostles, he says, if you see a brother, he's not rejecting the Lord. But he sinned. What should you do? Well, you know, Paul says in Galatians, he'll talk about how you should go to him and seek to restore him. There's all of that. But here John gives us this beautiful idea of why don't you do this? Why don't you pray for this person? And why don't you ask God to give him life? Why don't you pray for his forgiveness on his behalf? Whenever a brother or sister is, is sinning, instead of making it a matter of gossip, why don't you say, Father, I ask that you forgive them. Your son hung upon the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so I'm joining him, and I'm praying that for my brother, for my sister. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Give them life. Lord, don't let their sin overtake them. Don't let their sin ruin them. Don't let their sin swallow them up. But forgive them. I forgive them. And let your grace flow into their life. I use the keys of the kingdom to loose them. Forgive them, I pray in Jesus' name. See, this, should, this ought to characterize us within the church. The church ought to be the most radically merciful place on the planet. This ought to be a place where people can be authentic and receive the healing mercy and grace of God that rescues our soul and saves and heals and makes right our soul. And what ought to categorize us outside of the church is that we proclaim and also embody this same message of forgiveness. When we are ridiculed, when we're mocked, when we are persecuted, we imitate our Savior and absorb the blow. We absorb the loss and we recycle it into Christ-like forgiveness. It takes the Holy Spirit to live that way, but that's the kind of Christianity that is the hope for the 21st century world. And that's what I'm calling myself and our church to. Let's go on that way. Let's follow that path because that's the path of our Savior. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.